Let me welcome you all to what I'm sure will be a hearty and fully nourishing evening. Uh, I have the delightfully difficult task of, among other roles, serving as chair tonight. I say that this duty is difficult and that I expect I'll have to do more than the usual amount of wrestling and wrangling uh, uh, so that we might all respect the constraints of our clock, but that expectation is based in the very source of my aforementioned delight. Uh, namely, our topic this evening is a delicious one. Yeah? <laughs> it's an oddly appropriate word to use uh, in this context, I I'll, I'll grant you that, uh, but David Hansen has served up a menu of ideas that this panel and you as participants uh, will surely savor rather than devour as we chew over what he's given us to sort of contemplate here. Uh, professor of Philosophy and Education and Director of the program here at Teachers College, David has produced this slender but very substantive volume, The Teacher and the World, a study of cosmopolitanism as education. Now, the text begins by asking quite directly what we might mean in speaking of the teacher and the world. Uh, a seemingly small question, the reply spans five chapters and an epilogue and charts a course of learning to, quote, respond to the world, to draw upon the knowledge and skills we cultivate to shape lives creatively, end quote. Hansen offers cosmopolitan orientations as a historically enduring, responsive, and hopeful approach to remaining loyal to our familiar contexts, yet open to our vibrant and shared world. The truly remarkable feature of this project is that even as the text ideas enlarge our educational context in the face of globalizing trends, the work safeguards the very essence of those educational experiences. Uh, this evening we'll hear fairly short comments from Eduardo Duarte from, of Hofstra University, Rene Arcilla of NYU, Shireen Rashid from Long Island University, and me, Winston Thompson of New York University as well, before we return to David Hansen for a response. After David's response, I will, of course, uh, uh, be fielding questions and uh, we'll get into a bit more of a discussion, uh, I imagine. Um, now, as indicated earlier, we're in for a real treat, so it only makes sense to end my welcome here with bon appetit. <laughs> uh, I want to begin by calling attention to the vibrant textual tapestry that is David's book and situate um, the larger context of my response this evening by comparing it to Walter Benjamin's project of indexing and citations. In her introduction to Benjamin's essays and reflections and illuminations, which she edited, Hannah Arendt wrote of Benjamin, he knew that the break in tradition and the loss of authority which occurred in his lifetime were irreparable, and he concluded that he had to discover new ways of dealing with the past. In this he became a master when he discovered that the transmissibility of the past had been replaced by its citability and that in place of its authority there had arisen a strange power to settle down piecemeal in the present and to deprive it of a peace of mind, the mindless peace of complacency. Quotations in my works, Benjamin writes, are like robbers by the roadside who make an armed attack and relieve an idler of his convictions. So like Benjamin, David has offered us a work that has found a way of taking up the past by citing its presencing in the present and showing it to be alive in the here and now, ready at hand as, to, as a resource for enlivening and inspiring us to make education infused with meaning. Taking further inspiration from Arendt, I'd like to situate my comments and questions in response to David's book around one of Arendt's well-known assertions that speaks directly to David's positioning of cosmopolitanism as education, as the art of living. In her essay, Crisis in Education, 
Arendt says in her famously emphatic style that the function of the school is to teach children what the world is like and not to instruct them in the art of living. That's from Crisis in Education. Using this assertion as my touchstone, I want to do a bit of internal critique, reading Arendt against Arendt, and thereby offer some commentary that emerges from one basic question that I've raised before in response to Arendt's assertion. Why not teach the art of living? And showing how one can read Arendt against Arendt to support what I take to be cosmopolitanism as education, I do want to draw attention to what I take to be a potential missing link in David's book, an absence that one can note in the very title. Indeed, as you will see momentarily, from an Arendtian perspective, the title ought to be The Teacher, The Child, and The World. In turn, my comments revolve around the child or the student and are intended to explore further what we might do when we both teach children what the world is like and instruct them in the art of living. My sense is that David has ample resources to respond to Arendt's admonition against teaching the art of living, but does not perhaps say enough with regard to her directive of teaching what the world is like, which, as I will suggest, is a preparation for politics, or what Jacques Rancière calls intervention in the visible and sayable. In general, I'd like to hear more about the child, the student, and how cosmopolitanism as education is practiced as instruction in the art of living. And I'd ask David to address why this kind of education is, or is not, a preparation for action, for, for practice of freedom, for political engagement. As David tells us from the onset, to think of cosmopolitanism as education today is to connect with the tradition handed down to us as the art of living. This connection represents a response to the above-mentioned break in tradition and speaks directly to what Arendt describes as the crisis in education. The crisis in education is but one manifestation of the condition that has arisen in modernity and the loss of institutions like schools to organize life meaningfully or outside the logic of instrumentality, which places individuals within the mass of humanity Arendt calls the social. In response to this crisis, the educator, according to Arendt, must take responsibility for the world out of joint and also prepare students to repair anew this disjointed world. Hence the two-sidedness of education. Students must learn about the way things are in the world and further be prepared to bring something new into this world so as to renew it. For Arendt, education hinges on preparing students to take up the crisis of modernity as an opportunity to initiate something new. In reading David's book, I take this preparation to be the thrust of cosmopolitanism as education. It interrupts education as socialization by turning teachers back to themselves to a thinking that is a caring for the self and a creation of the self. David writes, the tradition calls on teachers to work on themselves. Self-improvement refers to what the tradition sometimes calls ethics, the ongoing project of cultivating as richly as possible one's intellectual, moral, and aesthetic being. If we are educating for a world that is or becoming out of joint, then we are educating towards the renewal and repair of the world, or what following Ranciere, who draws on a rent, I, I am calling politics, intervention in the visible and sayable by individuals. Beyond ethics, perhaps, we can identify the cultivation of itself for the public realm, for politics. This move from education to politics is embedded in Arendt's own language, where she talks of education as conserving what is revolutionary in each child. In turn, she categorizes this as conservative education, because it protects the natality of each person their singularity, and by extension, the plurality of humanity. In fact, we might see this as one way of understanding the cosmopolitan, or each individual as part of a constellation of humanity 
that is itself part of a universe defined by plurality. However, for Arendt, by conserving the singularity of each student and by extension the plurality of humanity, a so-called conservative education is always also preparing students for action and anticipating the appearance of singularity in the public realm where all can see and be seen, hear and be heard. In turn, action or politics is the culmination of the art of living, the demonstration of the capacity to bring something new into the world, the appearance of our being a person amongst people. As Arendt writes, plurality is the condition of human action because we are all the same, that is human, in such a way that nobody is ever the same as anyone else who ever lived, lives, or will live. Thus, when we educate in such a way that we conserve the natality, the revolutionary of each and every child, we're also educating to and for the plurality of humanity by way of intervening in the reproduction of the social. Instruction in the art of living aims to be a conservation of singularity via thinking and a regeneration of plurality via action, presuming we embrace this teleology. Amongst those who read Arendt closely, there is a debate on the matter of education as a preparation for politics, and my reading is but one of many, and one that is attempting to show why, despite her rejection, instruction in the art of living is consistent with her larger concerns for a world where thinking and action are increasingly under attack. But here's where I'd like to ask David to speak to cosmopolitanism as instruction in the art of living, specifically the care for self as preparation for action or for the political. While I'm aware David's positions his book outside political cosmopolitanism, it's not clear to me how, given his uses of Socrates and Dewey, among other exemplary sources, cosmopolitanism as education is not directly linked to the preparation for political life. From my reading of David's book, we can describe cosmopolitanism as a process of engaging the young in both a care for self and a care for the world. Instruction in the art of living and learning about the world is, as it is are not mutually exclusive, as Arendt seems to indicate. Rather, the cosmopolitan teacher, as David has depicted here, her, excuse me, appears to be capable of joining these two imperatives and in doing so fulfill her responsibility to conserve the child's natality, their capacity to realize what she calls the revolutionary potential to begin something new. Again, joining these two imperatives, our duty to the child and world, entails directing the young towards the political. That is, directing them to see the care for self via thinking as a preparation for an interruption in the social, the realm of thoughtlessness. I, I think this is an implication of the book, but I'd, like, I'd welcome David to speak more directly to this formula I'm offering, which has an undeniably teleological character. To make this point a bit clearer, I turn to Foucault, whose lectures on the hermeneutics of the subject make mention of this link between the care of self and the political project. Tracing the art of living to Socrates, Foucault tells us the care for self is ultimately a preparation for care of the world. First and foremost, Foucault reminds us that Socrates described his own philosophical practice in terms of a political project, a practice of awakening his fellow citizens. He described himself as a gadfly to the polis, the irritant rousing the lady, lazy demos who had grown self-satisfied and complacent in the pursuit of private lives. His call to them to take care of themselves was political in the sense of being an interruption in, of the social order and also in the sense of drawing them outside of themselves. Care for self is in the end political because the self one is caring for ultimately is a public persona, one who will appear before others. The drama of Socrates' self-cultivation culminates in the Apology where Socrates interrupts the discourse of the court by insisting that he will speak in his own manner. And as Foucault reminds us, the Socratic imperative, which he expressed so emphatically to Alcibiades, 
is always a work on the self that leads one toward a care for the world, understood specifically as a care for the community or the polis. As Foucault put it, the need to be concerned about the self is linked to the exercise of power. Of course, the question immediately arises, what sort of care is political care, specifically when this is understood in terms of governing others? One more page. Um, <laughs> I think. Oh, two. Okay, I'll read very quickly. The personal is political in the larger sense of that maxim. Because I worked really hard on this and I'm reading the whole Because care for self is... Because, <laughs> you know, it's, we're honoring David. Um, the personal is political in the larger sense of the maxim because care for self is always teleologically moving towards a care for the world or the political as caring is cultivation of plurality. To be cosmopolitan is to be a citizen of the world, a member of a global community, whereas David's citation of Terence suggests, I am a man, I deem nothing that is human to be foreign to me. And here it's important to note that the political community, perhaps as imagined to use Benedict Anderson's category, is one that defies our common sense understanding of the historical, so that members of the global community coexist together despite their having lived in late antiquity, modernity, or as David proposes, in a distant future. And things must work this way, for if Terence's maxim aptly qualifies the ontology of the cosmopolitan, then his community is imagined to be one of radical inclusion, one in which he can have affinity with everyone. And in the spirit of the mestiza, who as Gloria Anzaldúa writes, by developing a tolerance for contradictions, a tolerance for ambiguity, learns to juggle cultures. She has a plural personality, she operates in a pluralistic mode, nothing is thrust out, the good, the bad, the ugly, nothing abandoned. By way of concluding, I would like to come back to the comment I made at the beginning where I compared David's book to the work of Walter Benjamin, specifically on the matter of connecting with the past that's no longer transmissible. In the face of a break in the tradition, David speaks of inheritance and he identifies the cosmopolitan teacher as one with an ever-expanding sense of their inheritance. By rethinking the meaning of tradition through the category of inheritance, we move into the realm of the imagined community where we coexist in the present with voices from the past, present, and future. Inheritance also speaks to the quality of openness inherent in the cosmopolitan ontology, which arises from cosmopolitanism's response and responsibility to the world. When we recall with the rent that we live in a world that is neither structured by authority nor held together by tradition, we are drawn to the beginning of her uh, preface of the be Between Past and Future, where Christ in Education appears, and to her quote of Rene Carr, the poet, who says, our inheritance was left to us by no testament. Arendt unpacks this writing, the testament telling the heir what will rightfully be his wills past possessions for a future without testament or resolve to resolve the metaphor without tradition, which selects and names, which hands down and preserves, which indicates where the treasures are and what their worth is. There seems to be no willed continuity in time. In fact, there's a gap. And in this opening created by a lack of tradition, the cosmopolitanism as education invites us to be improvisational and creative with our respect to inheritance and hence with ourself. There seems to be no world continuity in time, so we are free to imagine our community and to create ourselves by drawing on the resources from literature, philosophy, art, music, from the infinite library envisioned by Borges. To teach in a world that's out of joint is for a rent to take positionality of authority or responsibility for this world. To put it differently, it's to act with authority in a world that is not structured by authority and it is to show the necessity of caring for this world by taking responsibility for it. As I see it, this is precisely how we read what David calls inheritance as the cosmopolitan resource for building the imagined community with everyone. Dialectically, however, in constructing this imagined community, we're always tied to a recovery with the concrete reality of the world out of joint, and this demands our engagement in it 
with others through what we might call political demonstration. Thanks. Thank you, Rhoda. Uh, Renee? Okay, well, uh, it's great to be back at TC, and uh, I'm very happy to be part of this celebration of the teacher in the world. Uh, congratulations to David on a groundbreaking, truly original book. Um, you all must read it. It's, uh, uh, I assure you it's going to set a debate in uh, philosophy of education, reset it, the direction of that debate for uh, years to come. So um, just to keep my remarks brief, I'm just going to confine myself really to, to raising three questions based on a, a precy of David's argument. Um, these won't be critical questions because I don't really have time here to writ the questions in the detail of, of his reasoning. Um, but rather, they're just simply queries about how and whether um, cosmopolitanism might accommodate um, thoughts uh, that are developed from outside of his uh, framework. So first of all, just to, to summarize and recall to us the uh, general outlines of uh, the argument, um, David is, is uh, pointing out that all of us, but particularly teachers and students, are being subjected to a process of globalization, a process which understandably causes a lot of anxiety, uh, a considerable amount of disorientation. And we may be tempted to respond to this anxiety in a parochial fashion, um, you know, witness all our, uh, our current um, or, or those current uh, candidates for the presidency claiming that uh, waterboarding is not torture. Um, but contrary to that, of course, David wants to counsel us instead to a, co a cosmopolitan attitude, uh, one rooted in the international tradition of philosophy as a way of life. And this attitude centrally affirms, uh, on the one hand, reflective loyalty to the old and familiar, and on the other hand, reflective openness to the foreign and new. So that's a very general summary of, uh, of the piece. And my first question really has to do with how this framework might accommodate the idea of philosophy as a way of life being an intrinsic good. Okay, so uh, first let me give a quick gloss on what I mean, and I think David would agree with me about uh, what philosophy as a way of life might mean. And uh, just to put this dialectically, I would say it's philosophy as a way of life as opposed to philosophy as a specialized field of professional scholarship, right? The idea here is that philosophy is something that could conceivably be part of anybody's life um, and is a natural part of what it means to be human. As Gramsci put it, we're all philosophers. Now, by claiming that this is an intrinsic good, what do I mean by that? Well, if you'll indulge me here, I want to liken the idea of philosophy as a way of life to the position that sex has in our culture. So if, you know, someone were to ask, what's the pragmatic value of sex, you know, or um, can you explain uh, the practical benefits that would accrue to, uh, to sex? Well, you've already started to laugh. I mean, it's a, it's a ridiculous question because we understand that this is an inherently, you know, um, delightful part of our life. It's part of uh, the joy of, of, of being alive. Well, what I want to suggest is why don't we think of philosophy in that fashion, right? Why isn't it that uh, somehow 
our idea of what could be the, the joy of living is somehow exhausted by sex. Um, so another way of putting this would be, could we, could cosmopolitanism, uh, re, would it be comfortable reaffirming uh, Aristotle's distinction between practical thinking, uh, the practical thinking of, of techne and phrenesis on the one hand, and what Aristotle calls uh, theoria or contemplation on the other, where the latter constitutes an, ingre an essential ingredient of happiness. Um, so that's my first uh, uh, question to David. Uh, my second question has to do with, well, if we agree that philosophy as a way of life is an intrinsic good, if you're at least willing to entertain that idea, and if we accept, uh, as I think is pretty obvious, that to affirm that would require changing the world, um, because the world as it is today is in no position to, uh, to, to contemplate that idea, then could there be another serious obstacle to this change besides modern anxiety at the changing world? Namely, could uh, an equally uh, uh, serious obstacle to, to this idea be postmodern resignation to repetitive spectacles of pseudo-change. Um, now, this is an admittedly a critical uh, view of postmodernism that I'm putting forward here, one rooted in, in Frederick Jameson's work, among others. But right, there's this sense that uh, today we've uh, arrived at a state where we no longer believe that change is really possible. Um, you know, we've heard that four years ago, you know, and so forth. Um, and there's a sense that the more things change, the more they remain the same. You know, there's this pervasive sense of irony when we uh, look at the, um, the stream of novelties coming at us. So uh, could it be that that attitude needs to be addressed in some way? Not just anxiety that the world is changing, but skepticism that the world can actually seriously change. And so that brings me to my last um, question, which is, well, if we agree that, um, we need my, that we need to address this postmodern sense of resignation, then what kind of attitude might be constructively helpful in, in doing that? And for David's consideration, I'd like to suggest uh, one that has two features. Uh, so first of all, I'd like to suggest that uh, such an attitude would be one that emphasizes reflective loyalty to the truly new, right? And in particular, loyalty to the idea of utopia. Now, um, here I know uh, this maybe uh, gets into some of the arguments that uh, David considers in his book, because David is, is quite critical of some of the tendencies to utopian idealism. Um, but I wonder if, might, if maybe some of that criticism could be uh, directed or, or at, at a certain idea of utopianism in the same way that David uh, wants us to uh, separate loyalty to tradition from traditionalism. And in, in, in contrast, I, I really want to just suggest a very simple idea of utopia, one which is, um, I think, at the heart of uh, a great line of uh, Pascal's where he says, uh, man infinitely transcends man. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's surprising to find a, li a line like that in Pascal as this great Augustinian, uh, but 
Uh, I understand that line to be uh, suggesting that there are no limits to what the human might be. And it's up for us to try to um, build the human. Um, so I would put forward that as a possible object of loyalty. And the second part, and you can see where I'm going here, is um, I'd like to suggest that perhaps this constructive attitude might also emphasize a reflective openness to the past. Um, now, what could that mean? Um, you know, I mean, aren't, isn't the past already with us? What does it mean to be closed to the past? Well, um, I would like to argue that um, we could think of this notion of openness to the past as an attitude that is never content to let the past simply remain the past, right? Uh, where the past is seen as a milestone on the road that led to and traditionally supports the current state of things. Rather, um, openness to the past would bring the past into the present by listening to how the past articulates possibilities that have been currently suppressed. And though there's no time to get into this here, this would be maybe the beginning of a, a reading of uh, Walter Benjamin again, so his theses on the philosophy of history and what he calls messianic time, um, this notion of the past interrupting uh, uh, the present. So in this sense, uh, works of philosophical history, I would suggest, always end up with that great line from Rilke, du musst dein Leben andern, you must change your life. I'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be back here too. I was here 11 years ago defending in this, in this building, I think, as having Renee as one of my advisors. Um, so I'm going to contextualize my work in my own um, David's um, book, which I thoroughly enjoyed and um, really excited about further looking at it uh, within the context of my own work. So the questions, of course, come out of um, the issues that really spoke to me and the questions that I will be focusing on at the end of my commentary um, will be on uh, ethics and uh, David's notion of cultural identity and his criticism of multiculturalism and ultimately on pedagogy and uh, the pragmatics of that. So, um, so I'm going to start off with sort of putting up front the current attraction with globularity in academia that we find ourselves with and why it is its rhetoric so seductively irresistible. Uh, what is the nature of its authority? Uh, Aranda Krishna in his book, Theory in an Uneven World, suggests that globalization presents itself in our current discourse, both as a reality and as the representation of that reality, all within a unified temporality. As if the very essence of reality were global, and therefore any attempt at interrogating globalarity would be nothing short of discrediting reality itself. But a question then, I ask myself, is how did reality get globalized so absolutely and normatively? And by what processes did the space between reality and representation get closed up and claimed the name of globality? When thinking about curriculum and pedagogies, what role does a school play in understanding and exploring globalization and its critique? To what end do we teach global and transnational literacy to our students? And how internal conflicts concerning diversity and representation to be addressed through teaching the global? 
Uh, without giving us prescribed solution, David Hansen's book, The Teacher in the World, shows us the process through which the answers to some of these questions can be arrived at by cultivating a reflective openness to the new and reflective loyalty to the known. A cosmopolitan orientation to the world signifies the human capacity to be open reflectively to the larger world while remaining loyal to local concerns, commitments, and values. By exploring the concept of cosmopolitanism from the point of education, Hansen attempts to provide the conditions under which the varying, shifting meanings of identity as other can be understood in the classroom. The teacher in the world calls us then to re-envision orientation to the world, an orientation, he claims, which invokes an individual the response rather than a reaction to the constant, sometimes intense pressures of globalization. Combining the richness of learning by fusing the singularity of local community experiences within a larger social justice framework. Learning then can be seen as a continuous process, unpredictable, unending, and a way of life or dwelling in the world, as he calls it, in relation with others. It presupposes a reflective way of writing, speaking, listening, observing, and contemplation. It involves a learning from rather than merely tolerating others. This is an important point that I want to focus on in Hansen's book because it elucidates the fact that although it seems that we write to celebrate cultural differences and diverse national cultural tradition, these cultures alone cannot generate and conceptual, the conceptual and intellectual resources to address many of the most pressing public good that all communities need stable financial systems, strong welfare regimes, safe sustainable development, a protective global environment, and so on. These problems will not be solved by national cultures asserting their supremacy. They'll only be solved by people and communities coming together to protect and nurture what is important and common amongst us. What does this line of thinking mean for multiculturalism and diversity? On one hand, it blurs the image of self-sufficient cultures negotiating difference and contamination when they bump up against other cultures. It certainly undermines the idea of an uncomplicated and unambiguous national, ethnic, or cultural identity. And in doing so, it pulls the rug from under the idea that the responsibility of an education is either to bolster some kind of a national identity, or to affirm as equally and unarguably valid multiple cultural identities. Hansen clearly states that cosmopolitanism is not synonymous with multiculturalism because its focus is not on cultural identity. Rather, its own cultural continuity and integrity, which are dependent on cultural creativity, on what communities and individuals and process of becoming through the experience of reflective openness to the new fused with reflective loyalty to the known is what he emphasizes throughout the book. Perhaps then the failure of multicultural theorists in current post-colonial and post-modern discourses of difference then is that they have failed to articulate such an alternative model for intersubjective relation, focusing on cultural creativity as opposed to cultural identity Hansen includes the individual's need to cultivate his or her own values in interaction with others. As he says, cosmopolitanism is not an identity. It is an orientation that assists people in sustaining their cultural integrity and continuity. It is not fixed or nor is it pure, but can only be achieved by, achieved by a change. 
Then the ethical characteristics of such a pedagogy include an aesthetic ethical responsiveness on the part of the teachers to dwell morally with their students. What Hansen tries to do through a cosmopolitan ethics then is to try to bring to light this non-appropriative relation to the other that is based on ethics of responsibility rather than power. A relation cosmopolitan identity that is ever incomplete, ever emergent, and ever vulnerable. Ultimately then, such an education accompanies a democratic and a political lens if you contextualize it within a liberal form of democracy, or as Hansen calls it, participatory democracy. The tension between the universal and the particular, the cosmopolitan and the local, requires more serious analysis, the more unified and integrated our shared global networks of institution become. The process of mediation, suggests Hansen, might be accomplished through the integration of cosmopolitan norms into democratic practice. In this, cosmopolitan norms become a part of the local democratic practice. As Hansen states, cosmopolitan orientation finds expression at the crossroads of reflective loyalty to the known and a reflective openness to the new. The very transparency and egalitarian underlying democratic legitimation creates a place for the universalism of these global norms of mutual respect and hospitality. To quote Hansen, it is a reflective hospitality to engage with what is on the other side, end quote. The process is described following Jacques Derrida through the logic of iteration. Each repetition of the value of the universal becomes, in the particular instance, both a speaking of and a reply to the universal norms themselves. More prosaically, the cosmopolitan process then that Hansen talks about might be understood as a form of negotiation. The universal norms are challenged and given form by the specific challenges of the local political community, whose self-understanding in turn is adjusted through the application of universal concepts in its discussions. Ultimately, creating a pedagogical framework to explore not just difference, but our orientation to the concept of difference itself. So given some of these issues I brought up, my, the questions that follow, one of my questions that follows from the physical, um, from the ethical um, contextualization is, um, David, to what extent then is the cosmopolitan of education a theory capable of foregrounding not only a future for, but also ethical respect for the other? By opposing the conservative political work performed by privatized moral discourse, which reduces social antagonisms to the apolitical experience of good and evil, does an ethics of cosmopolitanism then redefine freedom in relational terms as an engagement in transformative praxis motivated by the obligation of another? And if so, how can seemingly contradictory terms, the affirmation of becoming, and the respect for the non-thematizable alterity of the other be negotiated without evoking the Kantian reversibility of freedom and obligation. The other question I have comes from a um, multicultural and the whole notion of identity perspective, and that is to what extent does cosmopolitanism not only challenge domination, but also create hegemonic coalitions and reclaim subjecthood for the oppressed by overcoming the universal and the particular dichotomy. And the last question is contextualized with the notion of pedagogy. Um, first one being, what is the role of intentionality and motivation in orienting oneself to cosmopolitan pedagogy? And to what extent can that be learned? 
And following through that, with that is while successfully implementing cosmopolitan methodology of orientation as a tool of resistance to deal with discourses of different in our classrooms, how can educators and teachers still adhere to the stipulated mandate of testing, or as right now we call race to the top? Because that's the question I get asked every time. Thank you. To read David Hansen's The Teacher in the World as an invitation to a particular way of being in and learning from the wonderful plurality of our shared humanity seems a straightforward task. I submit that though this text is masterfully written, its elucidations sobering in their clarity, the manuscript's central ideas of reflective loyalty and reflective openness require far more than our inert and simple acceptance. I characterize this text as a multifaceted invitation, but rather than a call to attend, as you've all so dutifully done this evening, uh, we might consider this work as an, as an entreaty to remain attentive. Instead of a simple or sophisticated summons to be present, we might also find in these pages a petition to present ourselves in perpetuity. I'd like to focus my remarks this evening on some elements of this invitation's ramifications for justice in our shared world. To my reading, Hansen's project is intimately concerned not only with his declared and detailed questions of ethics and morality, but with those of justice as well. Some of the real-world examples of the cosmopolitan orientation that Hansen highlights uh, have international conflict as their backdrop, while others are relatively private, small, and interpersonal matters. Uh, no matter the scope, both categories deal in some way with questions of living well with and because of others. This cosmopolitan orientation offers an inspiring and exacting vantage point from which we might regard our duties towards our fellows and ourselves, no matter, wherever, no matter where we find either. More directly, in his epilogue, Hansen engages with the cosmopolitan account of the context of disadvantage and disparity by stating, quote, the educational focus in this book walks hand in hand with a democratic political commitment with its fundamental value of universal justice. End quote. It is this educational focus bonded to an accent on inclusive global democracy and justice that Hansen's work invites me to explore further. Though influential in the broad theorizing of the just structure of social institutions, the 20th century political philosopher John Rawls rather famously grappled with the questions of justice in the face of the very plurality that Hansen highlights. In his early work, Rawls attempted to make sense of the inevitable instances of moral tension between the known and familiar in contrast to the new and contested. Rawls labeled and developed the concept of reflective equilibrium in the service of this problem. Stated simply, reflective equilibrium is the process by which one considers judgments and moral one's considered judgments and moral convictions are squared against seemingly incompatible alternative accounts. Reflective equilibrium is maintained as one balances one's moral principles, either rejecting the unfamiliar or else incorporating the same into a revised, yet still uniform and coherent statement. In this way, Rawls's reflective equilibrium forms a partial foundation for his larger project of basic structural justice in a world of apparent moral multiplicity. Now, Hansen's account of reflective loyalty and reflective openness taken in tandem, represents a truly generative position standing in some relief here. Uh, Rawls's reflective equilibrium with its willingness to conclude, to rest, seems somewhat flat by comparison. The almost automatic weighing and counterweighing of features of human experience uh, seems rather abstract and removed from that experience when compared to a pose of rooted receptivity. 
we might then recast Rawlsian equilibrium as almost unconditioned or reflexive equilibrium, saving the careful status of reflectivity for Hansen's loyalty and openness. So rather than catching oneself in a suddenly vertiginous moment, one might accept the invitation to confidently navigate and delight in the liberating uncertainty wedded to recognized and reliable grounding. I do not wish to imply that Rawls' equilibrium <clears throat> and Hansen's reflective loyalty and reflective openness exclude one another. Rather, in many instances, they might be complementary. Uh, but I would like to pause an observation of one aspect of their fundamental difference. Whereas Rawls builds a theory of justice partially upon this justification of an account of moral principles, Hansen finds the preconditions for an engagement with justice in truth, factuality, and the accurate representation of the world in which those principles have emerged. In seeing our world and ourselves more clearly, we might remain reflectively responsive to the variability and ambiguity that often renders our most steady, our most steady institutions belated, unreceptive, or impotent. Indeed, Hansen begins his project by reflecting upon Susan Sontag's recommendation that we serve truth in the further service of a justice, quote, which is not yet. From this, we might declare Hansen's text an invitation to greet that future justice. So rather than focus on institutions of justice that attempt to give fair consideration to the differences between peoples, Hansen's cosmopolitan orientation invites us to begin the rather difficult work of crafting individuals who are responsive to the very contextual demands of justice. As asserted earlier, this is no simple task. It's not a problem to be solved. There's no checklist of particular activities, no final destination to be reached. It's a hard path a tumultuous journey ever onwards that requires the presentation of our most attentive selves. This is the educational experience that Hansen describes as a predicament, a condition, a feature of life to be continuously engaged. Hansen's thoughtful words on cosmopolitanism as education invite us to this, our shared and unrehearsed adventure. To that end, I invite David Hansen to further comment upon elements of the text's ramification for justice, uh, politics, the child and her natality, uh, the intrinsic good of philosophy as a way of life, uh, change and utopia, uh, ethics, cultural identity, multiculturalism, and of course the exhausting and energizing educational <laughs> process in which we must engage for the sake of our pluralistic present and an unknown future. Thanks. Well, good evening, everybody. Um, I've been listening like you, listening just like you have uh, the last uh, 45 minutes or so, and it's a rich brew to listen to. Um, one of the things that um, is most joyous for a scholar is to have his or her work taken seriously. And uh, I am very grateful uh, to my colleagues here for how carefully you've read the book and thoughtfully your comments have been rendered. Uh, it means a great deal. Um, they were also very courteous um, to send uh, an indication in advance of what they were going to say. So I have a, I have a few notes prepared. Um, some of them I'm going to jettison on the, on the way because of some things they've added uh, to, to, their, to their notes. Um, and what I'll try to do is, um, um, there's no way I'm going to do justice to the range of, of, of my colleagues' questions. Um, what I'll do is maybe accent a few uh, issues in the book, a few themes in the book, and as I do so, sort of turn to different questions that came up and, and different themes that came up. Um, so let me start first with um, maybe putting together some comments from, uh, from Winston and, and Shireen, who, um, as you could hear, are, are drawing on some different philosophical traditions, um, different theoretical lines of inquiry. 
but their questions sort of cross, cross paths at the concept of justice, the, the idea of justice. And one of the things that, that I do in the book, um, try to do in the book uh, in, a, in, a, in a number of ways, is talk about or, or try to describe what I take to be some fundamental underlying conditions um, of our human condition uh, in this 21st century of ours. So among other things, um, I try and talk about the reality of what we might call permeability and porosity to influence on the world. That no matter how thick the walls uh, we try to build around ourselves or our communities, how, how, no matter how thick they may seem, it's impossible to keep the world at bay. Um, the very creation of the walls themselves reflects the permanent ongoing presence of, of external influence. So this reality of permeability, porosity, I think presents a challenge to, to we humans. Another condition that I talk about a lot in the book, um, and, and, and I think you could hear some, some references to it, um, is the, the unfathomability of human diversity at the level of the individual and at the level of culture and community. Literally, literally the unfathomability. Uh, and and the, the theme here is that um, is a familiar claim. It, it goes back to the Greeks. Um, you can see rifts in it in Confucius's Analects that the diversity within any given person can be as great as the diversity between any two persons. And the diversity within any culture or community can be as great as the diversity between any two communities or two cultures. So the unfathomability of diversity. A third condition that, that I, I try to highlight, try to uh, address, is um, again something that, that, that we heard from, from, from my colleagues, is the permanence of vulnerability that marks us uh, and perhaps felt in, in particularly intensive ways for a lot of people today. The permanence of vulnerability and fallibility, um, which can be very hard to face up to, especially the, 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 the theme of fallibility. Of course, we professors are always very great at uh, confessing our errors, but, but fallibility is, a, is another condition that we, we just keep encountering um, our, our, our weaknesses, our, our inabilities to, to get things perfect or, or whatever. Um, another condition that I talk, about, I talk quite, uh, about in the book quite a bit is um, the notion of instability as a kind of ubiquitous condition for individuals' lives, community lives, just the, the instability or, if you will, the sort of ongoing permanent nature of change that, that faces us all. And indeed, that change, as any number of commentators have, have emphasized, is, seems to be really accelerating in our time. I think so many people feel really sort of pressured and pushed in ways that seem new uh, on, on this planet. So in, in these kinds of conditions, um, challenging conditions, it can be very difficult um, for us to come to know not just others, but to come to know ourselves. Um, these whole processes of self-understanding and understanding others can, can be, seems to take on, they seem to take on a, a greater kind of difficulty. Uh, the challenges seem intensified. So justice, um, which, which Winston added explicitly, but I think Shireen also was accenting and, and, and Eduardo to some extent too, justice comes on, on, the, on the scene as a kind of a term of art, perhaps, a name that points to how we humans might, in our contemporary moment, um, respond humanely, respond in mutually supportive ways to these conditions that I've just summarized, to the manifold expressions of these difficult conditions. How might we respond humanely and in mutually supportive ways? And, and these conditions are, as we know all too well, topped off by 
the um, sort of uh, persistent and in some ways spiraling unevenness in the playing field in terms of cultural and economic and political resources shared by people around the world or not shared by people around the world. Against this backdrop, um, one of the things that, that um, and, and I really appreciate these lines of questioning because I, I've been thinking about it from the beginning of thinking about cosmopolitanism. At the end of the day, I, I don't think cosmopolitanism is, is, a, uh, is a solution or offers anything that might go under the name of a solution to these kinds of predicaments and problems. It offers no decision mechanisms. It offers no clear-cut protocols. It offers us nothing of, of that sort. Um, indeed, as, as Winston mentioned, um, in the, at the conclusion of the book, I, I, I make an argument or a claim that, that cosmopolitanism walks hand-in-hand hand with a democratic commitment, but that means it's not the same thing as a democratic commitment. It walks hand-in-hand hand with it, but cosmopolitan-mindedness, I think, is something other than that and has a certain kind of I think quality to it, or I would, I would argue richness to it, that, that we need to keep distinct from overt political projects or, or, or engagements. Instead, and I think, um, and I, I really appreciate, Shireen, your, your, your sort of riff on this, um, it is a, an orientation. That's, that's the word that I found myself over these years coming to. Um, it's an orientation. Literally, you can almost think of it physically, how we orient ourselves in the world. And, it's, uh, it took me a long time to get to that concept. Um, the, uh, I, sh I, I can say that this book um, took multiple writings. I once had, uh, in 2008, I had a whole draft ready. It was over 100 pages that um, I more or less jettisoned. Uh, it was just wrong, really just wrong. And, uh, and this word, um, this word orientation that, uh, that came back around, and it's an old word, orientation, it's a lovely old word, uh, suddenly sort of opened some doors and I think allowed me to, to get closer to, to what I'm trying to say. So orientation, um, cosmopolitanism as an orientation, it, it, what it does I think is that it helps, it can help we humans, um, sort of no matter what our situation, no matter what our, our stations, cultivate um, generative responses rather than fearful reactions to these kinds of shared conditions that we have. Generative responses rather than fearful reactions. There's such a world of difference, I think, between these two postures. And, and um, among the, the sort of core concepts that thread their way through the book is, is one that, that, that you've heard mentioned, this idea of reflective openness to the new, fused in one's life with reflective loyalty to the known, to the local, if you, if you think of the word cosmopolitanism, cosmos, sort of world, if you will, politanism, that goes back to that Greek word polis. Um, so reflective openness to the new is sort of the cosmos side of the concept, openness to the world, openness to, to what comes from the world. But then politanism with polis um, is a kind of orientation towards the local, a kind of reflective loyalty towards the local. And polis here, um, its primordial meaning, or one of them that I'm playing with here, is not a political uh, meaning primarily. It's not a state or a government or nation. It's a community. It's a constellation of people who've come together, uh, and there's many kinds of communities. So reflective openness, reflective loyalty, also play a lot with um, the concept of value and, value and values and valuing. 
and try and think about what it, what it means in this world of ours today to, um, to hold and express our values in reflective ways, in sort of self-critical ways. Um, and the idea here is holding values points to sort of ways of seeing, ways that we look at the world, ways that we, that we regard each other. Um, expressing values, holding and expressing values, the expression of values points to action, points to our actual conduct, um, the, the concept action that, that Eduardo put on the table. And then a third trope, just to put, that, put this on the table as well for our discussion, um, I find myself coming back again and again to the, uh, the concept of home. Um, cosmopolitanism, I think, has something to say about the concept of home in this radically changing and transforming world of ours. And, and I talk a lot about um, how a cosmopolitan orientation, cosmopolitan-minded way of being in the world, allows the person to deal with a, a certain kind of paradox, the person or the community to deal with a certain kind of paradox, namely the seeming necessity, if our ways of life are going to endure through, diff through difficulty and vicissitudes, the paradoxical necessity of always leaving and remaining at home, always leaving and always remaining at home in the same action, in the, in the sense that being ref reflectively open to what is coming to you, new people, new events, new, new practices, being reflectively open to enact that is ipso facto to leave home. Instantaneously, you've left the comforts of home because you've now engaged something new. It's no longer the same world for you. But it's not wholesale giving oneself open to that which is new. It's not abandoning one's identity. So one, one retains or one remains at home at the same time, this notion of reflective loyalty to the local. And here, um, the, the, the qualifier reflective is crucial. Uh, and, and I think a, a, couple of, a couple of colleagues here uh, sort of emphasize that in their own ways. It's not just openness, it's reflective openness. It's not just loyalty, it's reflective loyalty. Without that qualifier, we could be in domains of dogmatism and fundamentalism and, and the like. So the, the concept of reflectivity is, is, is crucial here. And also, um, yeah, I think, I think Shireen, this was, this was in your comments. Um, one thing I learned through this um, project, and I've, I've been working on this for the last seven, eight years um, persistently, one thing I did come to learn or, or come to believe about cosmopolitanism is it's not a new identity in the world to compete with other identities. It, it is instead, as, I'm, as I try to emphasize, an orientation. So it doesn't replace other identities, but it does invite people to think about ways of holding their identity, reimagining ways they, they, they hold and express their, their identities. So it's an orientation. Um, it moves um, towards, towards learning from others, not just tolerating. Tolerating is obviously an, a terrific achievement, but it does point towards actually trying to learn from and with other people. And that's where the, the subtitle of the book eventually came into being. Um, it just sort of came from this idea that cosmopolitanism, as I've come to see it, is, is really a name for an orientation that it's an educational posture in the world. It's dwelling educationally in the world, uh, sort of uh, this openness, this, this loyalty. And I think um, this touches on notions of justice. It touches on the concept of, of the other uh, that we hear very, uh, a great deal about today. I think in a way, what cosmopolitanism can help us do, um, I don't do this in the book, I don't know quite how to do this, but I think it points us towards this, is to help us find ways to talk about 
what may be an empirical fact that we are all other to ourselves as much as to others. We're all other to ourselves as much as we are to others in the kind of world that we're living in now, this transformative world we're in right now. And that there may be, if we, if we play with this direction, work with this direction, there may be ways to reimagine our descriptions of ourselves and, and of each other, where maybe the concept of the other maybe just falls out of play. Maybe we won't need that particular concept. Um, I'm thinking of um, Terence's quote that Eduardo, you, you, you brought back on the table, um, uh, homo sum humani nil ama alienum puto. I am a man, I deem nothing that is foreign, nothing that is human to be foreign to me. Um, and this, I, I, I find that, that uh, sentence so rich with possibility, one of them being, in light of this comment about reimagining the concept other, reimagining, not just reimagining the concept of the foreign, Terence says, I, I deem nothing that is human to be foreign to me, but maybe just gazetting the term. Um, we no longer, why should we use the word foreigner anymore? Why not just gazette the term and see what kind of descriptions that we come up with? By, by dropping the term. And one, one heartening thing that uh, the research I've done over these years on this concept, one deeply heartening thing is that um, this kind of language, this, um, this reflective openness, reflective loyalty and the like, um, for me, it's come not just from um, philosophical anthropology, sort of thinking about human possibilities based on human actualities, but um, it's not just philosophical anthropology, but I've, I've read a ton of field-based anthropology and sociology and scholars using interdisciplinary frameworks. It's, a, it's, a, it's an emerging field-based literature that's using cosmopolitanism as its frame of reference, as its interpretive framework. And I, I find this really exciting. I've learned a lot from it. It gives me hope, um, uh, hopefully not in a self-serving way, but it gives me some hope that this language actually is rather real. It has an abstract quality, but it describes things that actually are quite real, that there are uh, communities and individuals who are enacting modes of reflective openness, modes of reflective loyalty in one and the same move. Um, so that, in a sense, this language, at the end of the day, it would be nice to think of it as a descriptive language, uh, not just a kind of normative or, or purely abstract language. Um, it shows us, and here, here that I think this is so germane to notions of, of justice and, and ethics and, and the like. Um, um, this research shows us, um, along with um, an emerging line of historical research as well, which is very productive and, and generative, I think, that um, cosmopolitan mindedness um, knows no class affiliation, no particular racial affiliation or gender affiliation or, or rootedness or source or, or, or whatever that it's as likely to emerge in a working class immigrant community as in a, uh, a well-to-do portion of a, of a given society. That as often as not, cosmopolitan mindedness comes from the margins of, uh, of societies, nations, uh, locations, regions, and the like. It comes from the margins, not just from the center. Um, the margins where the new meets the old uh, in so many different kind of iterations. Um, and so, so from the perspective of justice, um, what is encouraging to me about this idea is that it, um, cosmopolitan mindedness comes from the ground up. It comes from the bottom up. It's not something that is legislated in a top-down way. 
It's not something that has ever needed institutions to get off the ground, political, formal uh, institutions. It's been around a long time on this planet. It, finds it has found expression historically, and it does today, under any number of different kinds of political regimes and, and, political and, and, and cultural regimes, if you will. So it's not dependent on a top-down uh, initiative. Um, it's very much a bottom-up, very much a human beings using local cultural resources. And, and um, Trina and I were talking about this a little bit before. Um, to say the least, strong international institutions are necessary to support cosmopolitan-mindedness among many other needed issues of, ju of justice. I mean, that does go without saying. Just as long as those top-down institutions don't replace the bottom-up energy, the bottom-up uh, action of, 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 of human beings. Um, it doesn't preempt them or take their place. Cosmopolitan-mindedness, I think, cosmopolitanism as education, is more like the tilling of the soil than it is building new institutions. It's more like a, a tilling of the soil in which institutions advancing justice can perhaps grow the, grow the roots that are necessary for those institutions to survive and, and to make a difference. But, but let me turn now uh, in, in, in these last few minutes to, uh, to some of the things that uh, Eduardo and Renee accented. Um, again, as you can hear, um, both colleagues coming from, from some comparable lines of philosoph philosophical inquiry, some, some, some distinctive lines, but I think crossing paths at certain points that I want to touch on. One is um, this idea of curriculum as a cosmopolitan inheritance, um, which is a, a theme that runs through the book, and, and it's almost like the culminating idea in the whole book. The notion that the curriculum in the schools of the world, we can think of it as a cosmopolitan inheritance. That what we call art, history, literature, language, science, mathematics, these are not just practical responses to practical difficulties, but deeply, deeply human responses to the experience of being alive. Deeply human responses to being here at all in the first place, to, to being on the planet rather than not being on the planet, which may touch a little bit to some senses of wonder that I think Rene was sort of gesturing towards in, in his comments. Um, deep human responses to the experience of being alive. So that these subjects, as we call them, these disciplines as we call them, and maybe we, maybe we call them that in a, mis, in a misleading way. Maybe it's not always helpful to use those terms. They, they begin, again, if I can put it this way, as much in a deep sense of wonder at being here, uh, if not awe, as they began in various um, engineering challenges that human beings have faced from the beginning, namely how to, how to exist on this planet, a, a challenging environment. Put a different way, cosmo uh, curriculum understood as a cosmopolitan inheritance to, to all of humanity, I think mirrors another underlying condition or feature that, that, that we all face. Um, here it's kind of a feature. It, they mirror an underlying quest for meaning that I think is true of people around the world and has been, I think, since the beginning of culture. That w among the capacities we human beings share, aside from speaking and listening and learning and others, one of those capacities or, or dispositions or, or whatever is, is an underlying quest for meaning. Wanting to live more than a stone-like existence, to put it in really simple, crude ways, but wanting to lead a life of meaning. Um, and this is why um, in the book, um, this, this will touch on a few comments that, that uh, colleagues mentioned. This is why in the book also, um, after uh, uh, quite a bit of thinking about this and reading and rereading, 
I came to the conclusion that cosmopolitanism has, um, we, we need to reimagine how to translate that term. Um, traditionally, historically, it's translated as citizen of the world, cosmopolitan. Cosmopolites is the Greek word, citizen of the world. But I think it's legitimate, uh, based on at least the research that I've done, and, and I, I would argue it's legitimate, to translate cosmopolitan as uh, inhabitant of the world. Not citizen of the world, inhabitant of the world. A person who can come into the world, can dwell fully in the world, can participate in the world, can create and contribute to the world. Um, and I see a certain kind of priority, I mean, speaking as an educator, of helping children and youth and adults using the curriculum, thinking of the curriculum as a shared inheritance to come fully into the world, to inhabit the world fully, and to participate in the world. And that giving us a kind of ground for beginning to think about thinking about citizenship. Um, and this, this then, um, if you get this quest for meaning, if you think of this idea of, of inhabiting the world, they, they join these other conditions that I mentioned earlier, um, the, uh, the uh, unfathomability of diversity, the ubiquity of change, um, the, the, uh, these, these other sort of conditions. These conditions, in a way, become, I, 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 would, I would put forward the idea, part of the discussion in classrooms and schools themselves. They become part of the curriculum, actually talking about these conditions explicitly. They become, by becoming part of the, of the dialogue in schools and classrooms, it seems to me they, they generate new grounds, you might say, for, for communication across differences, with and across differences. And they may even create grounds for, for new forms of solidarity. And then this gives rise, just a, a last couple of comments. Um, this gives rise to um, some reflections on Arendt um, that, that Eduardo especially put forward. I'm thinking of her, her, her very famous um, sort of beloved tropes almost that, that Eduardo uh, 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 echoed, uh, care for the world, uh, responsibility for the world. Um, and I think I, think I would, uh, I, I think I'm right there, Eduardo, with what you said, that, that I would like to argue that, that, it, that the teacher can fuse a deep sense of tradition while cultivating the art of living with her, his students. I, I think that both can be done. I think, I think she strains to separate them. Um, I think both can, can be um, dynamic and, and alive and well in the classroom. Um, and this, this care for the world, this responsibility for the world, to use Arendt's terms, again, I think it can come from inhabiting the world, dwelling in the world. Um, I talk in the book about cosmopolitanism as, as generating um, you might call them, to use a, a technical term from the literature, uh, rhizomatic rootedness. Um, the notion of arboreal rootedness is arboreals are like trees with roots that go way down deep. Rhizomes, like potatoes and many grasses, their roots are horizontal. Um, so, so, so gesture or, or talk or describe in different ways about how this cosmopolitan idea helps us imagine new, new modes of root growing. Um, aboreal as well as rhizomatic, um, open and loyal, those kinds of things. Um, and here, um, this notion of inhabiting and dwelling, maybe this, um, maybe this can touch on uh, um, Eduardo's suggestion for a new title, uh, which I think is wonderful. Um, what was it? The teacher, the child, and the world. Um, 
I'm, I'm with you there, um, very much so. And, and, and I do try to talk, especially in the last chapter in the book, um, try to talk uh, uh, from the student's perspective, try to foreground the, the, the student's experience uh, in the process of sort of cosmopolitan-minded learning. But, but I will say, and I think your, your question's helpful, uh, sort of reminding me of, of who I am or, or where I come from. I come from a, a long uh, career of working with teachers and working in teacher education. And I still, to this day, um, feel deeply, deeply concerned about teachers' situations in our time, especially our public school colleagues um, who are under the pressure of uh, no child left behind and race to the top and, and all of this. So I, from the word go, I, this book, I, I knew I wanted to try to write something for the teacher and really address her and address him, my, my colleagues, um, in K through 24, so to speak. So, so it's a deliberate accent, um, but I, I think it's a, it's a really, I think it's a very exciting next step to really begin thinking a lot more about the child as well, uh, the child's cosmopolitan experience in the world. I mean, we have so much to learn from children. You can almost think of children as natural cosmopolitans, the world over, the way they take in the new. Um, and then, um, I think I'm yeah, just about done. Thanks for your indulgence. Um, the last thing is um, Renee's comments about the past that I, I, I did want to make sure I, I touched on. Um, because it's not just rhizomatic, aboreal roots across and in the present, but, um, but I, I really treasure that idea. And I think this is in cosmopolitanism, Renee, as I've come to see it, is, is part of the educational project is reconstructing our roots in the past. And, and you have to reconstruct them. It's a, it's, it's a work, it's a, it's a labor in our time, as, as Benjamin strongly uh, encourages us, but reconstructing roots. And in the, method, in the book, um, sort of the methodology of the book, um, I do try to, in a couple of ways, talk about how the past is still ahead of us. Um, I try to talk about how teachers can read and study their curricula with students as if it's from, coming from the future not just from the past, as if it still lies ahead of us. As if it's not just the familiar uh, cliche that we, we all stand on the, on the shoulders of those who came before, but it's that they stand on our shoulders as well, if their voice is going to continue be, to be heard, if their distinctive responses to the experience of being human are going to continue to be heard. And I think this, this keeping the voice of the past alive, keeping it as dynamic as possible, um, beginning in the education of children right through continuing education with all of us. I think it's, it takes on greater and greater intensity uh, as the days go by. Um, I, I see us all dwelling, in, and this is a, a bit, Renee, on your the uh, postmodern spectacle, um, that, that lovely image that you gave us. Um, I see the, um, us under tremendous pressure, this sort of, I almost feel like this, this vice V-I-S-E, Vise, if I can say that, of presentism. Presentism just closing down on us, um, this sort of shallow, I think highly destructive assumption that contemporary outlooks, values, and interests are self-justified and superior simply by virtue of being current. Um, the only way we can stand outside is with a, a deeply responsive uh, uh, ear to the past. And so, in conclusion, I think one of the things that um, these uh, four sets of very rich comments, which I've only touched on uh, in, these, in these remarks, 
they make me realize that I think what I've done in this book, one of the things that I at least reached for in this book is a non-linear conception of human progress, uh, a non-linear uh, conception and, and the vitality of thinking in those terms. Um, so that in the book, uh, I, it becomes important to write phrases like Plato says, Confucius says, and, uh, Dewey says, and Arendt says, not said, says. Uh, it becomes really important to, to speak that way and to write that way. So this, this relation with the past then, I think, shifts us from um, notions of critical thinking. This is the last note I wanted to share. Notions of critical thinking that dominate educational discourse in our time. Uh, the teachers, all teachers need to teach critical thinking. It's kind of a, sometimes I think a very uncritical address to teachers about how to engage <laughs> in critical thinking. I think it, this, this sort of reconstructive relation with the past in this cosmopolitan mindedness shifts us from notions of critical thinking to notions of thinking with. Thinking with one another, thinking with the world, thinking with the future, thinking with the present, thinking with the past. Thinking in response to, learning to think in response to and alongside long-standing human aspirations, hopes, dreams, ways of creating meaningful forms of dwelling in the world. Call this a utopian but not utopianist perspective. Um, and then circling back then from that um, to curriculum as cosmopolitan inheritance, I think we can reimagine thinking itself in our time as a process of responding to being here, just being here, and to the implied questions that I think the cosmos is always addressing to we human beings. Questions about how are we dwelling, in what manner are we underway, how are we making or fashioning our way as people. Um, thank you very much. You spoke about a ref reflective loyalty to the past and a reflective openness to the new. Um, why did you, can you tell me more about why you chose the word reflective instead of maybe careful or responsible? What, what does this word embody in this sentence? That's a, that's a very nice question and, and I'm still thinking through how to answer that, but um, in a, in a nutshell, without launching into another sea of words, um, the word reflective, um, I, I like it. I like its sort of cognitive, intellectual overtones. I also like its notion of reflecting, it's the aesthetic, the perceptual dimension of reflective, of, of reflective openness, reflective loyalty. So it, it brings together the cognitive, the intellectual, the perceptual um, notions of sensitivity, um, sensibility. To me, the word reflective hangs together with uh, an aesthetic, moral, intellectual uh, aspect. They, they stand together. Um, so that, that's a brief response. Yeah. Renee mentioned um, the art of living, uh, that, that tradition of philosophy. Um, and um, I think the art of living does, I don't know what you think of this, Renee, um, its relation with wisdom. I think one of the comments I heard you making, and here I can slip in a response maybe, is um, maybe wisdom be can become a term of art, or it can become a name for those moments of intrinsic good, maybe for those moments of dwelling for dwelling's sake, um, those moments that you pointed to um, where, 
we're in that sense cosmopolitan mindedness, and I think this is absolutely right, is not just a means to an end, but can point to certain kinds of experiences of joy and pleasure and being in the world in that sense. Um, maybe there's a kind of wisdom to seeing that, acknowledging that. It feels like that to have a cosmopolitan stance, you'd have to have an awful lot of self-confidence. So I guess I'm wondering, my question is, can you say more about the kind of person, the, the personal prerequisites, or what else goes along with it? And then the second question I have, since I think a lot about people in groups and identity and that kind of thing, is how does it work at the group level, cosmopolitan? Um, you know, I study Jews, so I'm like, I'm thinking about that. I mean, and there are, one of the books you cited in the bibliographies about cosmopolitans and parochials in that very group, so I, I, it's possible. I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't know. Anyway, I'm, that's the question. So if, if you shift levels, up levels of analysis from the individual to the group, and not to speak of the nation or these other things that still will exist, um, then what happens? Yeah, thank you. Um... One thing about cosmopolitanism that is, I think, vital is that it's um, this notion of, of reflective openness and reflective loyalty to the local. I mean, there, there is that need, that's that recognition of of community that's at the at the core here. It's not an individualistic concept, nor is it a universalistic concept. There are there are associations with the word that reduce it to universalism, and have no there's no discussion whatsoever in some treatments of cosmopolitanism about the need for the local. Um, Martha Nussbaum, in her beautiful and well-known treatments of cosmopolitanism, almost dismisses the local. She calls it an accident where we're born, which I think is, I won't go into how wrong I think that description is. Um, but in a nutshell, I think um, it, it takes community um, to cultivate uh, this kind of openness, loyalty, this, uh, this willingness, this ability to hold and express values in reflective ways. This does take community support in many different of many different kinds, and so, for example, for you know, for my own work, thinking about teachers and working with teachers, it's not something that I could imagine a teacher trying to, you know, be cosmopolitan-minded in her classroom alone, and thinking you can pull that off. It's it is um, as I think colleagues emphasize. It's hard. It is difficult. It's a I think Winston, your words at the end of your comments. It's really hard work. And it's persistent work, it's never settled work, it's never final work. So I think th there's a lot of work in uh, teaching, teacher education about the need for teacher community to really stay together and work together and talk together and above all to learn from each other about how to keep these, uh, these sensibilities going. Um, I don't know if that helps a little bit. Um, and, and that kind of works at the community level, that other part of your question. I don't work with the idea of citizen of the world. Um, I don't its inhabitant of the world that I'm trying to understand better and think about how that might, might come to be. Um, so I, I don't know what to make of terms like citizen of the universe or citizen of the cosmos. Uh, it sounds so abstract to me and it's so high up, that, where's the oxygen? Um, and, and I think, I think we really, I think cosmopolitanism is, is a real local word. It sounds so big and pretentious, but it really, its life is really on the ground very locally. As for questions of transcendence and non-materiality, and um, again, I think, um, I mean, I would have my own personal take on that, which I think, I think there's 
personally, I would say there's something kind of, I would say there's something kind of good about the cosmos. I would say that, um, and I won't go any further than that. But I don't think cosmopolitan mindedness or cosmopolitan education implies any metaphysics like that. I think everything I've described, everything I describe in the book does not presume or expect a particular metaphysical picture or, or picture of the transcendent. Um, that's, that, that's coherent or walks with why I don't think cosmopolitanism is a new identity. It's not a new identity, it's a way of holding an identity. It's a way of reimagining an identity, reconstructing an identity in face and interaction with others. Um, it's, very, it's clearly normative, for sure. It's better to be reflectively open than closed. I mean, there's, there's many normative layers, but um, yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not imminent in the concept, as I understand it. I read a, a lovely argument uh, uh, a while back, uh, a fellow arguing for a world government, that we need to have a world government, and then we can make sense of the concept citizen. Um, I, not sure whether he really meant that, but uh, um, but yeah, I think I, again, I think just to I may have to just repeat myself, but I think Brian, I think learning to dwell in the world, learning to be present in the world, not a spectator of the world, but a participant, um, something that children know how to do well, but we seem to sort of unlearn them how to do in some funny way in society but really dwelling, really inhabiting. I just see that as so educationally important and prerequisite, that's the somewhat maybe controversial claim, to a robust notion of citizenship. At the end of the day, it's not either or. It's not either or. It's almost, think of it as a kind of developmental image, if you wish, but that somehow dwelling has to precede the, the rights and duties and obligations of a, of a citizen, even knowing what those things would mean one other quick comment is that citizenship immediately seems to me to conjure boundaries and borders and demarcations and all of those, that, that long vocabulary with all of its baggage. And, um, and again, educationally, would want to, want to stay with inhabitant. But I, but I do want to add, and I think your question is, it's, it's another good form of pressure. Um, you know, there are so many difficulties in this world of, um, of uh, human rights and immigrant rights, and we, we're really struggling. We, as a, as a globe, some, some places much more di in much more difficult ways than others. There is a strain of literature and cosmopolitanism that's looking very much at the, the necessity of citizenship and, as I tried to emphasize before, the necessity of institution building. I mean, that is an ongoing project that has to continue I say, of course, 100% right on to that, but um, this is another human process that I think is not reducible to that or synonymous with that.